to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow and to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong, to love pure and chaste from afar, to try when your arms are too weary to reach the unreachable star. This is my quest, to follow that star no matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for that heavenly cause. And I know if I'll only be true to this glorious quest, that my heart will lie peaceful and calm when I'm laid to my rest. And the world, the world will be better for this, that one person, scorned and covered with scars, strove with a person's last ounce of courage to reach, to reach the unreachable star. That might be a song about our Lord, it wasn't written that way, of course. The first time I heard it was the year that Beverly and I were married, 1972, so 51 years ago. Of all people singing this song, Peter O'Toole in a movie called Man of La Mancha. But it's based on a musical seven years earlier than that. The words written by Mitch Lee, or the music by Mitch Lee, and the words by Joe Darian. And Dale Wasserman had written the book, I, Don Quixote. But we all know that the background for that, well, I didn't until I came to seminary. I found out sitting, Mary, in your dad's class when he began to talk about Man of La Mancha and Don Quixote, the background of it. Of course, the author of the original book, Miguel Cervantes, a Spaniard who died almost in poverty, had a bit of Jewish blood in him, and because of that, he was persecuted. He was tried by the Inquisition, and he was excommunicated in 1597 because he was not pure blood. The setting for the story, you might remember, at least for the movie and the musical, is they are in a cell, they're in a prison cell, and everybody is awaiting trial by the Inquisition. By now, the Inquisition, at the date of the writing of Don Quixote, which was 1605, the Inquisition has been implemented in Spain for over 100 years. It started in 1478 under Ferdinand and Isabella. The reason, officially, was to purge heresy from society, to purge it from the Catholic Church, and to purge heresy from Spain, which, of course, had a state church. But the real goals were to finish the Reconquista, that is, the reconquering of Spain from the last vestiges of Moorish control, to consolidate the power of the Catholic monarchs of Aragon and Castile, Ferdinand and Isabella, and to purify the Spanish race because there was some Jewish blood that had infiltrated the nobility and to get rid of false Jewish converts. And then finally, in the next century, to oppose Protestant reformers and those Catholics that were nonconformists. The methods were mandatory conversion, forced conversion to Roman Catholicism, or be expelled, or at the very least, excommunicated if you didn't conform to Catholic theology, or execution. The results were that hundreds of thousands of Jews and Muslims forcibly converted. Moriscos, some of them, and then the conversion of the Jews as well. 
millions of Jews and Muslims were expelled. About 150,000 of them over the course of about three and a half centuries were tried by the execution and about three to 5,000 of them were executed. It's unconscionable. But it really isn't an inaccurate description of the days of Jesus in a way because there was a state church mentality in Jesus' day and the church-state collusion of king and crown and Romans and the religious officials sought to purge society just like the religious and political coercion of the Spanish Inquisition. When you look at the background, for example, religious and political collusion was used against Jesus. For we find the Pharisees, the religious fundamentalists on one side, and the Herodians, that is the political fundamentalists on the other side, colluding together and plotting from the very beginning of the gospel, seeking Jesus' death. We see near the end, of course, the Sanhedrin bringing together those opponents, religious opponents, the Sadducees against the Pharisees, coming together and colluding then and coercing Pilate then to execute Jesus. So you see, the situation wasn't much different in Jesus' day. In fact, there was a bit of a coercive and impatient attitude amongst Jesus' own disciples. Think about it. Right after Jesus has called them then to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. Right after he turns his face to Jerusalem in Luke the ninth chapter, as they enter that Samaritan village, we don't know the name of it. Well, they didn't enter the Samaritan village, did they? Why? Because the Samaritans wouldn't let them. They weren't hospitable. And what did James and John want to do? They wanted to call down fire from heaven, you see, upon them. And of course, Jesus said, you don't know the spirit that you're made of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy people, but to do what? But to save them. And then you have Simon the Zealot. He came from a group that, in this whole state, church kind of environment, sought by religious rebellion to overthrow the Roman government. There was religious uh, jealousy and impatience on the part of the disciples. We see this going all the way back to John's disciples. John's disciples are looking over there across the river at at Jesus' disciples baptizing, and they're jealous because they're baptizing. That man, Jesus, is baptizing more than we are. It wasn't Jesus. They misunderstood, but it was his disciples. Jesus' disciples had the same kind of impatience and jealousy. They see a man that is baptizing in Jesus' name, and John comes and he complains to Jesus and he said, we saw a man baptizing in your name, and we tried to stop him. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Anybody that is not against us is with us. Let him keep it up. Impatience. As they're approaching Jerusalem, many who were following him then expected the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven to appear immediately, we're told in Luke's gospel. Impatience, Peter's impetuosity at Gethsemane. What did he do to Malchus? He pulled out the sword and lopped off his ear. And Jesus looked at Peter and rebuked him in Matthew's gospel. Tells us, he says, put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword will what? Die by the sword. Impatience. After the resurrection in Acts, the first chapter, they say, Lord, Lord, is it at this time now that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he tells them, be patient, wait, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be witnesses 
in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So there was impatience, there was jealousy, there were coercive attitudes. You see, behind this, today's story, I think, are these questions. If Jesus, if, if Lord, if, if you are bringing in the kingdom of God, why has there not been a radical change already? Uh, why, why aren't you, you can perform miracles. We've seen you do one after the other. Healing and the bread and all of those things. Stilling the storm. Why don't you use force then and power to bring about this transformation? And in the story today, Jesus teaches them about patience. He teaches them about restraint. He teaches them about reliance not on their own power, but reliance on the providence of God. I'm going to ask you to stand for the first reading of the Scripture today, if you would. We're going to have two readings, but for the first reading, it comes out of Matthew, the 13th chapter. Jesus presented another parable in verse number 24, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did, did we not sow good seed in your field? How, how then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. May God bless the reading of his word. The background of this, of course, in Matthew, the 13th chapter, we have what we are called the kingdom parables, the kingdom of heaven parables. The first isn't identified as such, but it really is. In the beginning, Jesus is talking to the crowds. And there he speaks four parables to them. The parable of the sower, where he sows the word, and he plants the word in human hearts. And then a little bit later, he explains the parable to his disciples off to the side. And then he gives this parable of the tares, which really is dealing with the population of the kingdom, the good seed, the bad seed, and the end time harvest. And there are two other parables that he speaks to the crowds. The mustard seed, which speaks about the growth of the kingdom. And then the parable of the leaven, which speaks about the influence of the kingdom in the world. And then Jesus shifts gears. He goes into the house, and privately he talks to his disciples. And they ask him about the tares, and he explains the parable of the tares, and then he also gives three more parables. Two parables about the value of the kingdom. That is, it's like a treasure what? What kind of treasure? Hidden in the field. And then he talks about a pearl of what? A pearl of great price. The kingdom has this kind of value. And then he closes these parables at the end of chapter 13 with the parable of the dragnet. That is, the net that's caught the overload of the fish that has a mixture of bad and good fish in it. And he reiterates to them, the importance of the final separation at the end of the age. I want to go then 
to verse number 36 and look at the explanation of the parable of the tares that we have read earlier. And listen to what Jesus said to the disciples when they asked him about this parable. Beginning in verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. When we look at the correlation of the parables here, we see some interesting things. First of all, there's some differences between the parable of the tares and the parable of the sower, and that's important for us to understand. In, in the sower, the sower sows the word. Here, who is the sower? Very clearly identified, not just as any sower, although we understand it to be Jesus in the first parable. Explicitly, it is the Son of Man. It is Jesus himself. The seed in the first parable was the word. Here, the seed is not the word. The seed is the people. In the first parable of the sower, it is the good ground that is good. Here, it is the good people that are good, the good seed. Here, the field is not the hearts of the people in which the seed is planted. The field is the world. It's the globe. The focus here is not so much on fruit bearing as it is in the parable of the sower. The focus here is to identify and clarify the kinds of people that populate the kingdom and a word of warning at the end that there is going to be a judgment. When you look at the parables also too in the explanation, there's an interesting tension between what Jesus says to the crowds and what he explains to the disciples. When he speaks the parable, the emphasis is clearly on the farmer's patience, the landowner's patience, the son of man's patience. But when he explains the parable, most of what he talks about there is he emphasizes purification and the warning about the judgment. Correlation between the parables, too, I said a moment ago, then the very last parable of the dragnet of the fishes reinforces then what is said at the end of the parable of the tares in the explanation, and that is the word of warning. Judgment is coming, and there'll be a separation. You know, there's disagreement about the scope of this parable. There's a popular view, and it's been popular for many, many centuries. It goes something like this. The church is the kingdom of heaven. The church is the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is the field. So the church is the field, you see. And both good and bad seed are planted in that field. That is, both good and bad seed are planted in the church. And the point then for the people that interpret it this popular way is then you don't purge the church of bad seed. There are two possible applications of this, both of which I think are wrong. I think the popular view is wrong. I think it's unbiblical. The first is, with that attitude then, the church state for many centuries said this, 
Okay, we're not going to focus on purging the church. Eventually they did in the Spanish Inquisition. But they focus on the outside of the church. That is, they felt it was perfectly appropriate to use force there, not in the church, but force out there in secular society in order to force conversions to Christianity. And I think that that's unbiblical. Secondly, today, some would even say with that view, well, if the church is the field and you are told not to purge the tares, then we don't exercise discipline in the church. You leave the bad seed alone. There are two problems with this interpretation. Number one, it's obvious. It can legitimize the use of coercion and force to convert people to Christianity. Secondly, it's pretty obvious. Jesus, last week, we heard him tell us, you do what in the church? You exercise discipline within the church. I think the biblical view of this, I know the biblical view of this, is what Jesus said. Jesus did not say that the field is the church. Look at it. He says the field, very clearly, he says is what? It is the world. It's not the church. In this, and this is an unpopular view amongst many today, they want to say that the kingdom of God is the church, and it's limited to that. The kingdom of heaven is the church. But no, in fact, the kingdom of God is spread worldwide. And the message of the kingdom of God is universal and appealed throughout the world. The church is God's agent in the world. The, the church is God's agent that functions in the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven covers the globe. And in that respect, then, the church is not identical to the kingdom of heaven. What that means is both good and bad seed are planted inside the church and outside the church. The point of this parable, I think, is this. The eternal destiny of all persons, the eternal destiny of every single person that has ever been born after Adam and Eve were created, the eternal destiny of every single person on the face of this globe, inside and outside the church, is known by God. He knows who the good seed is, and He knows who the bad seed is. And the one that only infallibly knows that is God. Only He knows it absolutely to be true. A second implication of this understanding is we do not use force. We do not use coercion to purge or to compel anything regarding religious belief. Take a look at, in this parable, the origin and the distribution and the nature of the seed. Look at the origin. The good seed clearly comes from whom? From God. And the bad seed comes from Satan. Now, some would then see this as a two-seed kind of theology that is highly predestinarian, fatally de deterministic. That is not biblical in my understanding. This does not mean that God creates some people good and Satan creates some people bad. How do we know that? Well, first of all, Satan has no power to create. Satan cannot make people bad. He can influence them, he can tempt them, but he does not make bad seed. God does make good seed. There's another reason. We need to understand this parable, the parable of the tares, in light of the parable of the sower. They're not identical, but we need to understand this background. So what has God done already? He has sown the good word. And then when he does this, everybody has an opportunity to make a choice. Good soil people 
in the parable of the sower. Good soil people choose to receive the Word of God, and they produce good fruit, and therefore they prove themselves to be good seed. And in that sense, you see, you've got the good seed of the parable of the tares. On the other hand, God has sown the good Word, but everybody else then who chooses his or her own destiny, everybody else does not receive the Word properly. Some let Satan steal it away from them. Some lack faith, and some are enamored of the world and tempted by worldliness. And these become bad soil that produce no fruit, and in turn, they prove to be bad seed people. The point is this. God, in fact, plants the good word, and Satan plants something else. He plants thievery and theft and robbery. Jesus tells us this in the Gospel of John. He plants doubt and he plants deception. And then each person chooses what they are going to become. You, this morning, have a choice. The good word is planted. The good word is sown. If you're watching online, you have a choice whether to receive it or not. And when you do so, you're making a decision whether or not you're going to be good seed or bad seed. You see, that is a matter of choice. The nature of the good seed and the bad seed is this. The bad seed are the sons of the evil one. They are stumbling blocks, verse 41. They block the truth and they cause sin. They are lawless, in verse 41. They disobey God's will and word. And they produce tares. Zazania is the word. We pronounce it that way in English, not in Greek. Zazania. You know, when I was looking for a title for this sermon, I didn't know. At first I said, don't weed the garden. And I got to thinking, you know, weeding a garden is pretty easy. I go out in my garden, I see the flowers there, and I see the weeds. I can pull the weeds up. It doesn't tear the flowers up. So that wasn't a good title. And then I thought, well, maybe it's call the crop. But culling the crop isn't accurate either, because what happens is you harvest the crop, and then you cull it. But you have good fruit that's better, and you have fruit that's not so good, and you maybe keep the fruit that isn't quite as good off to the side, you sell the good fruit. This is a matter of good fruit and bad fruit. It's a matter of good fruit and false fruit. So it's really actually a weeding process of the crop, not the garden. And in that crop, there's what is called zizania. We believe that this was bearded darnel. It's the only species of plant in the eastern countries that springs wild amongst wheat and oats. And when it first grows, it looks like wheat. It resembles it as a sprout. But when it matures, it has black seeds in it, and it's very clear then that it's not the wheat. And that black seed hosts a fungus that is poisonous to humans. But by that time, what's happened is the roots have become so intertwined with the wheat that if you pull the weeds up, then you will pull the wheat up with it, or at least damage the wheat. Also, too, the zizania caused damage to the soil for years to come. There are other historical examples of this. In India, they call the tares pig daddy. In Ireland, they call it wild oats. In England, they call it charlock. So what happens is the person, the enemy, comes in at night and sows the field of an enemy to do what? To do damage not only to the crop, but to the soil. And in Jesus' day, this act of revenge was punishable by Roman law. That seed is the bad seed. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. They are righteous, verse 43. That's quoted from Daniel, the 12th chapter. The righteous will shine forever. 
And it's implied that they're the opposite of the bad seed. That means then that they are not stumbling blocks. They're good examples. They don't cause sin. They resist sin. They are not lawless. They obey God's will and His commandments. Look at the distribution of the seed. Both good seed and bad seed are scattered throughout the globe. Good seed then does what? This is implied. But good seed comes together, and yes, good seed forms the church. That's true. Bad seed resides in two places. It resides outside the church, but it also resides inside the church. Bad seed resides inside the church, and it produces false fruit. We know this from Scripture. Jesus tells us, watch out for what? False prophets. You will judge them by their fruits. They follow a counterfeit gospel about which Paul spoke in Galatians. They have false teachers that Peter and John warned about that introduced destructive heresies. Jesus described them as wolves and what? Sheep's clothing. So inside the church it's possible that you can have false leadership, but also you can have counterfeit Christians. You can have false brothers and sisters that are either heretics or they're apostate. They fall away. Paul tells the Corinthians that in his second letter. You have folks that are not righteous in the eyes of God. They aren't humbly dependent upon him for their righteousness, but they're self-righteous. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 10. There are some that manufacture fake fruit. It's like when Jesus then left Bethany that morning and he was going to Jerusalem and he he saw a, a bush out there, remember the fig tree, and he expected it to have fruit because it had blossoms on it. And he comes to it and it had false fruit. It did not have fruit. It's that kind of manufacturing of false fruit that sometimes we see in the church. It is possible for there to be false fruit, false prophets inside the church, but also outside the church. Sometimes it's counterfeit cults that follow personalities, that follow false prophecy, or maybe it's an alternative worldview. And it appears to the world as light. It appears to be good, but in fact, those worldviews are hostile to Christ. All of these are tares. So what does Jesus command? He says, do not gather the the tares. The meaning is, basically, don't pull them up, don't remove them, don't purge the field. It also implies that we're not to use force in purifying the field, and that is, use force to purify the world. The rationale is what? Well, it's pretty obvious. We cannot always tell what is good seed and what is bad seed. You see, only God in the final analysis, I'm not saying that you don't know whether you're good seed or bad seed. Most of this is pretty much common sense, and we give evidence through fruit bearing. But only God infallibly knows every person that has ever breathed on the face of this globe, whether that person is good seed or bad seed. You see, some people look like good wheat, but they're not. They're false. But there are others that may not look good right now, but they're in the process of conversion. And there needs to be patience in that respect. You see, the zazania was so extensive that was sown into the field and so intertwined with the roots of the wheat to pull the zazania up would uproot those that are in the process of maybe conversion and bearing fruit, and they become damaged. You see, Jesus had this in his own experience. You know, there were many that followed Jesus, and they called him Lord, Lord. And what did he say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He'll say, I did not know you. Why? Because they were following him for what reason? Well, they loved the miracles. They wanted to be fed with the bread. They were looking for signs. But they weren't true followers in the final analysis. 
Some of them were actually spies. There were some in the crowds out there that may have acted like they were following him, but they were looking for a reason to accuse him, the Scripture tells us. There were some of them even at that moment that were plotting against him. There were in his own inner ranks, there was bad seed, the very worst seed of all, Judas. As early as the feeding of the 5,000, he doesn't identify him by name, but he says there is one amongst you who is a what? Who is a devil. So we don't gather the tares, Jesus says, because you might uproot the wheat. It doesn't mean that we don't exercise discipline in the church. We do. We should still do Matthew 18. We looked at last week. We exercise discipline in the church, but we do it very cautiously, and we do it according to the way that Jesus told us to. And when we excommunicate, when we disinvite somebody from the table, it is with a purpose of what? Redemption and recovery and love. We do still oppose morality and immorality in society. We speak prophetically in society, and we hope to transform the culture through our example. We do still defend the truth against heresy, polemically, and against opposition from the outside, apologetics. We still do all of those things to oppose evil. That's not what Jesus is saying. We don't stop those. What it does mean, I think, is this, that we cannot completely purify our society out there. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we try to transform society out there, there is always going to be, there are always going to be terrors out there. You see, that is only going to happen when? When God in his own time sends his son Jesus Christ in the parousia, the second coming and when the judgment comes, and then society will be perfect. Oh, it doesn't mean that we don't try to transform it, but we need to be patient and wait for the Lord to complete it. A second thing is that we must not use punitive force to purge society. Many in the past, in a puritanical and judgmental way, an alliance between religious officials and state officials have tried to, to do this in such a way that it usurps the due process of government, and we should never do that. A third thing that it does mean is that we should never try to coerce a person's religious conscience, either by trying to make non-believers into believers and try to force that, or inside the church, making believers that are already inside the church adopt extra-biblical standards of religious conformity that do not fit with the Bible. Let me apply these principles in closing. I think, first of all, don't judge based on appearances, okay? I think Jesus is saying, you know, you're not perfect in your judgment. Only God is. Some resemble wheat, but they're false fruit. Some are wheat, but they haven't borne fruit yet. Only God knows perfectly who is good seed and who is bad seed. I think a second thing is this. Be patient. He's telling his disciples, be patient. Keep on doing what I called you to do. Keep witnessing and praying relentlessly for lost persons. We need to do that. Be patient. You see, Christ is not finished until he comes again. Christ is not finished with a person until they die or until he comes again, and we need to be patient. I think a third thing is this. This parable helps us explain something about evil and suffering. 
Why does God tolerate evil and suffering? Well, there are many, many reasons that we have identified in Scripture and philosophically, and it's a tough issue. But one thing this parable tells us is that evil will not be purged completely from society until Christ returns. Now, the emphasis in the parable of the tares at the end is judgment, but this is also a parable of God's grace. You see, for as long as God forestalls the second coming of His Son, Jesus Christ, there's still an opportunity for people to do what? They can still repent, and God is giving them time for this. And so, in looking at evil and suffering, sometimes we have to allow that to exist in society until Christ comes again so that people have a time graciously in in God's eyes to repent. Another point is this, force is never Christ's way. Jesus never coerced anybody to follow him, neither should we. Another point, almost finished, we need to avoid harsh discipline in the church. We need to avoid harsh, harsh discipline in the denomination. Ah, people's ears tuned up. You see, historically, folks, this kind of harshness is always a part of an authoritarian, legalistic, controlling, and fundamentalist mentality. Did you hear me? You look at history. And it's always the legalistic, authoritarian, controlling, fundamentalists who do it. The Pharisees are a good example. The Donatists in the 3rd and 4th century, another good example, tried to purge North Africa this way. The Catholic Inquisition, Lutheran scholasticism of the 16th century, hyper-Calvinism. There were even Baptists in America in the early 19th century that were against missions because they were so high in their Calvinism and so judgmental about everyone else that they stopped preaching the gospel outside the church. Folks, it's always a product of a fundamentalist mindset. The Salem witch trials are a good example. It is akin to a religious form of McCarthyism in the early 50s. Purging, 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 purging according to whose standards? According to my standards, because I know what is right, and I have set the boundaries. It's always a product of narrow creedalism of those people who are in religious power that want everyone to walk in lockstep uniformity and not be broadly collaborative together. And what it seeks to do is to marginalize people that are not like them, and it seeks to expel them because of their nonconformity. Not to put too fine a point on it, folks, we have been engaged in that in Southern Baptist life for the last 40 years. There's been a lot of that going on, on both sides of the aisle. And it needs to stop. Why? It damages not only the church, but the denomination. It tarnishes Christ's image. Outsiders look at Baptist inside fighting and they say, I don't want a part of that. They look at Baptists trying to purge their ranks And they say, I don't want a part of that. So it damages our witness. It also uproots good wheat. Missionaries, seminary professors, and others that are not tolerated because they don't follow a particular line of theology, which is not unbiblical. It not only uproots good servants of God, but it also damages others. There are countless families, folks, over the last four, four decades in Baptist life. There are countless families 
whose children and grandchildren want nothing to do with a Baptist church anymore because of the fighting inside, because of the purging inside, and it must stop. We must heal our wounds. We must encourage one another. We must work together. We must be unified. You see, Jesus is saying, don't use coercion also within the church. Keep it in perspective. Our goal is not to purge society by force, but it's to set examples and obey God's will. It's not to hunt for counterfeits inside the denomination or outside, but to live and to teach the truth and expose Satan's lies. Our mission is not to go to sleep, to continue to warn this society, to continue to warn the church as well that Christ is imminently going to return and his judgment is coming. And our mission is to be patient. Don't be impatient. Urgently. Let's stop looking for counterfeits. Let's preach the gospel. Let's stop trying to purge our ranks and persistently pray for the lost. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our sin when we fight one another. Forgive us us of our sin when we try to coerce one another. Forgive us of our sin when we appear to the world outside as those that are more intent on internecine battles for power or whatever. Help us to stay focused on the cross. Help us to stay focused on preaching the gospel. Help us to stay focused on the harvest, the bringing in of the harvest. Lord, we do pray for workers to come into your field and the harvest. And we do pray that as we lift our eyes that we will stay focused on that. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.